Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets. The Kane Brothers bankers are working in some of the most interesting segments of healthcare with organizations and business models that are changing care delivery in the United States. I'm your host, Dave Johnson. I'm also the CEO of Foresight Health. I'm a recovering investment banker who discovered I was always meant to be a journalist. We co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers. Each piece becomes an exercise in examining a fascinating segment of the dynamic healthcare landscape. The focus of our articles and this podcast is on how to make America's fragmented, inefficient, and often broken system more integrated, consolidated, efficient, and customer-focused so it delivers greater value and innovation to the American consumers. Today, I'll be interviewing John Soden. John is a managing director at Kane Brothers, where he co-leads Kane's medical technologies advisory practice. John has almost 20 years of experience in medical devices, diagnostics, and life sciences tools. He's earned a BA in economics with honors from Northwestern University. John, welcome to House Calls, where the bankers are always in. Thank you very much. I, uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to do this and enjoyed writing the article with you. Let's start by talking about you a bit. What drew you to investment banking and to healthcare in particular? Uh, I was uh, an econ major and primarily focused in industrial organizations, different types of corporate structures and ultimately wrote my uh, honors thesis based on technology joint ventures and what made them work and what made them fall apart in sort of the underlying rationales. So a lot of that complex structuring fed into not only my interest in M&A, but uh, also in this uh, article about uh, private equity and strategic partnerships. Yeah, there sure was a lot of complexity, wasn't there? So the, the article we wrote together is called Win-Win Partnerships, Strategics and PE Investors Increasingly Team Up. So strategic investors, largely corporations, and then PE investors, private equity investors. So for our listeners who may not be as versed in the intricacies of finance as, as you, let's start by talking about why these sorts of partnerships are occurring and why there haven't been very many of them. I think you know, fundamentally, you have to step back and understand how hard it is to get a deal done to begin with, just with one counterparty. And as you add not only multiple counterparties, but different types of counterparties, you have different complexities with different types of counterparties. Public companies, of course, have not only boards to deal with and people within the, the various layers of management, all of whom have conflicting agendas oftentimes in terms of what sort of M&A deal they want to do or what they want to buy. There's always high priority things in the pipeline and lower priority things in the pipeline. And those things shift around as you're going through a, what could be a five, six month process mm-hmm. when selling a company. And then sponsors, they have investment committees to deal with. Uh, they were also contending with cost of capital as well as trying to understand if they really want to do this deal versus the 10 others that, you know, the various partners are currently evaluating. And so when you combine those two things, it's very, very hard to get the two groups to coalesce on doing anything, much less something with very complex governance structure that takes, it's really multiple transactions in, in, in one. So let's, let's, Talk about a, a sample transaction. You can pick anyone you want, but 
What struck me when we were working on this together is that you've got a strategic investor, a corporation that may or may not want an entire part of a company. You've got a PE uh, company that has obviously financial resources but also various tools and capabilities that they can bring to the party. There's an, a target that maybe many investors would like to acquire and it's looking for obviously a great price and perhaps a strategic partner or so on. So let's talk about how you take the capabilities of a strategic investor, marry them with a private equity investor and then create a transaction structure that gives the strategic what they want, the PE investor what they want and the company uh, that's being acquired what they want. Sure. So I think it's important to understand why a strategic would do this. A, a sponsor will do anything that makes money, and they're, they're generally pretty facile with any sort of complex structure. A strategic, on the other hand, you would normally expect them just to go in, acquire something, integrate it, extract you know, synergies out of it as quickly as possible, and owning it and controlling it is the best way to do that. So there really has to be some driving uh, rationales for them to even contemplate doing something that's more complicated. Some of the things that they look at are reducing overhead costs as they're thinking about um, what is the most efficient way for this transaction to come in. Sometimes, uh, while keeping it separate, it actually generates synergies because they may have dis-synergies near term. Or alternatively, it may be dilutive to earnings near term. So uh, anyone going into a private equity transaction is going to get a very big equity stake just for showing up. And uh, to the extent it works out well, uh, they're going to make you know, an incredible amount of money over a relatively short period of time. And that's, that's generally, in this uh, frothy market, that's generally about three years. And so oftentimes... If it's a challenging business uh, that they don't want to integrate and, and potentially um, mess up in the process of integrating it or to um, somehow disrupt the momentum, if they don't think they have the managerial talent to, to run it and keep the momentum going, or if it's a high burn company, which usually goes along with high growth rates, um, you know, they, they may choose to keep it separate and have a, a team that's very focused on that particular market or organization, really drive it hard until it gets to a point where they can bring it in, they feel it's stable enough, and it's uh, earnings accretive. Uh, even if they have to pay more for it long term, which generally is what happens in these uh, formulaic transactions or transactions with formulaic exits, because the private equity player also has to make money. What about the management side of that arrangement? What usually happens there? Sure. Um, there may not be a, a way to keep the existing management team who's driven the growth in place or to recruit new management to the extent it becomes a division of a larger corporate, which is less interesting and has less direct drive upside associated with the, the entity being bought uh, for whether it's the existing management team who continues on after the transaction or some new high-powered CEO and C-suite that's recruited in. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting uh, listening to you explain this uh, because it, it, it feels like the strategic investor 
is really the one that's that's shaping the transaction and that the the PE investor has a lot of obviously funding and capabilities and ability to take risk and and so on and it that kind of morphs around to some extent what the the needs of the strategic are so that together they can come up with a more attractive offer and 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 win the deal is is that the right way to look at it john or, i think or? i think it is and I, I would distill it down further to okay really for strategic to get involved and to leverage um very high cost capital that has you know uh, a threshold IRR of somewhere between 15 and 25%, depending on who the sponsor is, you know, there's got to be a pretty compelling rationale for to do that type of structure. And that rationale has to be strong enough that whoever chooses to partner with them really has to present a working corporate mechanism that achieves what that strategic is trying to either avoid in some cases or to accomplish in the event that keeping it separate really does uh, help that business grow uh, to a point where it can be absorbed appropriately. Well, let's let's try to get a little more concrete for our, our listeners and use a, a, a real transaction that uh, that you were a part of that, where you can explain the different roles and, and how the parts of the acquired company got divided up and how the, the formulas for exit strategies worked and whether there was leverage – Pick whatever transaction you'd like, but just lay out the um, the different components and why this particular deal came together and the strategic was willing, as you said, to absorb the, the higher funding costs in exchange for other ben- benefits. So why don't you just kind of dig into a, a real-life example for us? If- I tell you, what I'd love to do, maybe alternatively, is talk about one that's actually coming together okay. presently. And because Perfect. I think that – that presents a lot of different rationales that many of which don't exist in any one transaction as, as you look at the precedents that we cited in the article uh, or others that are publicly known. In, in this case, we have uh, a target that has a myriad of different businesses inside of it, um, all of which are relatively high growth, all of which are operated in a semi-entrepreneurial way. And those businesses are somewhat delicate in terms of how they operate. And so a bigger strategic looks at that and says, gee, can we operate at that level? That's a transaction that may very well benefit, whether it's all those assets are part of it from a financial partner and a discrete management team to oversee them at least until they get to a point where they're within that individual organization, the target itself, uh, they're sufficiently consolidated and synchronized that you can bring it into the bigger organization. Boy, John, that sounds like an inherently complex process. I think that's one thing that people worry about, particularly when they buy businesses that have been put together at a high rate or a fast rate by private equity when they go out and do you know, somewhere between three and 20 acquisitions uh, where the private equity firm really doesn't want to disrupt the momentum of those individual businesses. And as a result, they're kept somewhat semi-autonomous underneath a parent organization. So we actually see this situation quite a lot. And it's one of the things where more recently has become in vogue for corporates to even think about partnering with sponsors 
And then it's taken a while for sponsors. While they always like to talk about new structures, it's taken a while for sponsors to actually see it work in a number of different situations, many of which we cited. It was fascinating to delve into how the bankers put these deals together and along the way gained PhD-level insight into complex deal structuring. And to really understand how they're negotiated, how to pull it off, and how to protect themselves in those uh, partnership structures, which they're not used to. Most of the private equity players or control interest uh, in their orientation, which allows them to fix things very quickly if they need to, whereas being tied at the hip with a big strategic that moves at a, di- a different rate and has different priorities, I think scares a lot of people. So it's taken some time for both sides, the corporate side and the, the sponsor universe, to, to really understand that these things can be done very successfully. So in this, in the present transaction, we also see, because you have a very diverse business, there is some businesses that are more strategic and some businesses that, while strategic, either, you know, they're, they're not sort of a perfect hand-in-glove fit or at least they're not as strategic today as they're going to be three years from now. Uh, in which case, you know, the, the compelling need to integrate them isn't quite there. They may benefit from, you know, a more entrepreneurial team that, or management team that, that can really drive them hard over those ensuing years to a point where there's a clear fit into the Lego-like fit into the parent organization so there's a long-term appreciation for what that, that individual business or business line does for the parent, but it just may, the timing just may be a little bit off today. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, that gives uh, rise to a lot of questions about who's really going to take ownership of that business in the interim. Um, you know, do they have the not only the talent, but also the internal uh, prerogative to, to really do what they need to do to make it work until it becomes, you know, something that really folds into the rest of the business mm-hmm. later on and, and hangs together with the rest of the business. How do companies decide which businesses or business lines to keep independent when they're structuring these complex transactions? And the question is, you know, to what extent do you actually carve out assets from a diverse asset pool, or do you just keep the whole thing independent and and bring it in at the right time after it's sort of integrated within itself? So we see the situation a lot, and it happens to be relevant to three different situations we're looking at right now uh, because there's a lot of these uh, consolidation plays that are going up for sale, and a lot of the strategics see a lot alike. At the same time, they're, they're wary of the fact that uh, they may not be fully consolidated, they may be diverse, and they may not be ready for, uh, to take on the whole business or all pieces of the business immediately. So they, they, le- they want to acquire immediately what they like, and there is a strategic fit. They may not want to acquire some parts that just don't fit at all, and then there are other parts that at some point may make sense, and wouldn't it be great if they could park them somewhere for a while to see what happens? Yeah, yeah. The last two pieces uh, that you mentioned are very, very important, and of the of the several opportunities that I'm alluding to, each of those is resident in two or three. 
and it just depends how big and how diverse those businesses are ultimately. But there is uh, the underlying question of how do you incentivize people to make it work? That's also costly, just like the private equity cost of capital. You know, you really have to have a very strong rationale to uh, give up those costs. Remember, in order to win an auction, I mean, you have to be the highest payer, of course. And so you're then layering, you're, you're sort of handicapping yourself by paying these costs uh, or employing high-cost capital and giving away lots of equity to the management teams. And so you, you really have to have a strong reason to own those businesses long-term, whether it's you know offensive or defensive. And uh, there has to be great optionality, at least, if not, you know, some very obvious upside uh, associated with those businesses that may not be things that you'd like to integrate today. Yeah. Why don't we talk a little bit about the optionality and the different investment timeframes of strategic investors versus uh, private equity investors. I mean, you know, private equity is, is fairly mercenary in, in how it does these things. And um, they want control. They want to be out at a certain time. They're willing to uh, bring their capabilities to bear to, to advance that idea, um, but they don't have unlimited patience. Um, so uh, maybe talk a little bit about the, the various exit strategies, the formulas that, uh, that come through the various types of of, of put-and-call options and how the two parties sort of come together given their different perspectives, take advantage of where the perspectives uh, help and then create, um, I guess, exit strategies when they no longer provide the same level of benefit or it's time to move on for any number of reasons. There is um, typically a put-call arrangement in place. At, at the very least, a put, um, an option to sell that the sponsor has. And so this will be often structured as an option in years three through five, but rarely beyond a five-year period uh, where the sponsor knows that it can get its money back and it knows, assuming that the, the business has performed, that it can get a fair return relative to any control deal that they could go pursue. Uh, solo. And so uh, it's often the case that if you're going to give a sponsor a put that you as or one as the CEO of a big corporation who's going to partner with that sponsor, it's going to want a, an option to buy them out as, as well uh, at different points in time. And so that, that call option also has to allow for the sponsor to make a fair return and uh, factor in the, the sponsor's cost of capital. So these are pretty, uh, these formulas are oftentimes very straightforward, very mathematical, and uh, whether they're at a specific price or at a rolling EBITDA multiple or based on a set IRR to the sponsor, but generally things that need to be clear-cut enough that they don't inspire litigation. <laughs> generally, litigation is something we all want to avoid. Uh, well, uh, so do you see these partnership solutions becoming more common for certain types of transactions going forward? If so, why? And do you have any predictions for what kind of big deals we'll see in the future? I think they're going to become more common just because for the reasons I mentioned earlier, people have seen that they actually work. You know, 
it, it wasn't that long ago uh, that you saw maybe this this predated the uh, the Patheon deal, which was uh, a great deal that JLL uh, put together with World DSM in 2013. Prior to that, it was pretty rare, and um, you've seen people like Welsh Carson do a number of these deals subsequently. Other private equity firms have looked at them and seen what appeared to be a potential nightmare actually worked out very well. Uh, and some of the firms even pride themselves on being able to orchestrate these deals uh, as a core strategy where they constantly go and look for corporate partners anytime a, an asset of any type comes up because uh, they may be to they may be able to leverage a lower cost of capital of that sponsor. Uh, they have a built-in acquirer long term, and they have certain expertise and synergies that can be derived from a relationship with that corporate partner uh, in the during the interim holding period. You you meant the you meant the lower cost of capital of the strategic, right? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and that uh, that can take shape in a variety of different ways, but ultimately, what a sponsor wants again is simply to make money and generate a lot of growth in whatever their holding is and know that they're going to have an exit. Um, whereas uh, the, the decision, strategic decision process is a lot more complicated and uh, the rationales, there's a myriad of rationales why they, they ultimately might pursue this. Now, the question is, do or are the benefits to each sufficient to that as a partnership, that they can actually win, you know, against someone else who has is another big strategic who has a low cost of capital who is willing to take on the whole, who has a better fit. I actually think more often than not, if there is one of those in the hunt, they're going to win. And um, for sure, the seller is going to probably want to go with that party just to limit the complexity involved in getting from a uh, LOI to actually a sign and close deal. You know, deal risk is always first and foremost in our mind as investment bankers. And I think to someone who's spent a long, long time building a company, building a lot of wealth in the company, you know, going through a sale process uh, spurs a lot of anxiety. The last thing they need in their life is complexity. Uh, unless, of course, they want the best of both worlds and they want some sort of further incentive uh, to continue building the company, uh, which may exist in one of these partnership uh, type arrangements, similar to how it exists in a private equity arrangement, but perhaps they get a higher price as a result of these partnering sponsors and strategics, or perhaps they get more comfort that the strategic is longer term the right buyer, and, and this is sort of a bridge to that event. Yeah. Boy, it really is a dance. I, I was uh, intrigued by your description of uh, sort of the the sponsor market and how everybody was a little bit afraid of these transactions and then one or two got done and said, well, if they could do it, we could do it too. It's a little bit like when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile barrier. Suddenly, all kinds of people were able to do it. So uh, one last question, John, and uh, one thing I've, I've admired in, in our interactions as we've talked about transactions is um, you're always, I think, very clear about trying to get the most direct 
way to the conclusion, which would be a, a, a closed deal at a fair price uh, with everybody receiving benefits. You know, I, the benefits they're seeking. Einstein had this great quote that uh, things should be as simple as possible, but not simpler. And it strikes me that these strategic sponsor win-win partnerships, the way we call them, uh, are, are an example of that, that they should be as simple as possible but not simply. There's going to be some complexity no matter what. So as you're involved in these, what do you do to, to keep your line of sight clear to only have as much incremental complexity as necessary so that you, you don't end up creating even more obstacles for yourselves as you're working through these multiplicity of relationships and formularies and governance concerns and uh, maybe different strategic objectives of the company. How do you how do you keep the train moving forward? Yeah, so it's it's a fascinating question because it's it's really a two part question. One is how do you keep the train moving forward, and how do you execute these in a way within a sale process where there's a lot of competitive jockeying? Uh, including be- between the two parties that may be partners. Keep your enemies close and your friends closer. There you go. Yeah, and and so the choice of of picking a partner is actually quite difficult because you may not want to limit yourself to one party who may or may not ultimately have the highest degree of interest in the asset that you that you and others are chasing. Um, and so I think there's there's sort of wheels within wheels in that that regard. And, uh, but to the extent you have picked a partner and there are clear objectives, the real question to me is when does the strategic want to own the business and what are, what criteria determine when it's the right time? And that, that allows the rest of the transaction to sort of take shape around those objectives. They may have near term objectives as well in terms of. Uh, minimum earning accretion and how much capital they can deploy, how much capital do they need is the flip side of that question. And as a result, I think the the broad strokes of the transaction can be pulled together fairly quickly uh, under the assumption that the two parties actually trust each other and, and work well together. You know, in our interview with, with Welsh Carson, trust was sort of the primary word in, in uh, what they viewed as being their advantage uh, mm-hmm. since they already had a lot of the relationships and had already proven that they had worked well in past transactions with corporate partners. And there are a lot of things that you can't codify on the front end that you're going to have to uh, manage through together. Yeah. Uh, the, the initial structure may or may not work longer term. Your initial management team may, may not work long term. Uh, and these are quite difficult uh, and, and your, the corporate objectives may change in the interim as well. And so I think there's, uh, there's a certain social element to this that is always hard to assess on the front end, but uh, comes together fairly quickly. I would also say to the extent corporates can work with people who have already done these transactions and really know the the ins and outs of, of how to, you know, what levers you need to pull, what things you really need to focus on and can get through a, a high-level set of terms fairly quickly and, and provide the education that the corporate needs. Uh, because I think it's 
the corporate's getting education from its banker, but it's also getting education from its partner. Mm-hmm. So having a partner who's very facile with these deals and knows where the potholes are likely to exist, both near-term and long-term, I think uh, helps to engender a lot of uh, trust and um, allow these corporates to do something that's actually quite unnatural. <laughs> An unnatural act uh, that leads to benefits. Um how about that? Yeah, and by the way, if you look at, as I mentioned on the front end of this call, every corporate knows that uh, joint ventures are a recipe for disaster. The failure rate, uh, intentionally or otherwise, is quite high. And so any any partnership with a financial sponsor is going to be viewed with a pretty jaded eye uh, as a result. Great, John. Well, that's, that's a good place for us to land. Um, uh, we've been talking with John Soden, the co-lead of the medical technology advisory practice at Kane Brothers, uh, about this entirely new type of partnership between strategic investors and private equity investors to come up with a deal structure that they can use to acquire a company they want. And it's got lots of complexity, as, as you've heard. So thank you to Kane Brothers, a division of KeyBank Capital Markets, a member of FINRA and SIPC. Thank you to all the listeners for tuning in and catch us next time on House Calls, where the bankers are always in. Kane Brothers is an investment bank focused exclusively on healthcare. The bankers at Kane stand apart because of their deep knowledge of the healthcare industry and their practical know how when it comes to executing complex transactions in all healthcare sectors. These include healthcare services, medical technology, and life sciences. I'm your host, Dave Johnson. I'm a recovering investment banker who discovered late in my career I was always meant to be a journalist and maybe even a podcaster. I'm also the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of two books, the most recent of which is The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I love talking to other revolutionaries who are driving change in the healthcare industries.